Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. In all the conversations we have about the border, the one conversation we never seem to have is about economic impact. The economic impact of regarding immigration, the people we take in. But how about the economic impact of who we're not able to take in because we don't have a system that works? And the economic impact to all these communities across the border because we fail them. The economic impact across the country of spending and spending and spending and getting no value for it. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you talking to Jorge Lima. He is the vice president of policy for Americans for Prosperity. As you know, we're doing border week, the whole week talking about aspects of the border presented by AmericansforProsperity.org. Jorge, good to have you here. And before that, you were with the Libre Initiative. You worked with the governor uh, uh, of Puerto Rico, a uh, law degree over at Georgetown. Uh, that's that's a bit of, of your pedigree. Um, yeah. If you were going to give the elevator pitch to what it is you do regarding immigration policy on immigration, what is the elevator pitch when someone says to you, what do we need? What do you tell them? I say that immigration is good for the country, but we do need a functioning system, one that it can be respected and actually meets the needs of the country. So let's talk about what it is we have right now that isn't meeting the needs of the country. What, if you were going to laundry list it, uh, one thing, two things, three things, your top three things that okay. we do in the United States that simply don't work, we've proven that it doesn't work, what are those things? So one, the system itself doesn't actually keep up with the times, right? It's an archaic system at the moment that was already decades old. So it doesn't meet the economic demands, the community needs of the country right now. So I think that's one of the reasons we're getting wrong. The second big thing we're getting wrong is we don't actually have enforcement at the border, right? Right now, because the system is so wrong, it seems that the border is the only way to get in. And we have not kept up with the needs of our enforcement officers at the border or the processing officers at the border just to understand what is actually happening and make sure that we can, again, keep America safe and keep the interests of America uh, top of mind. And then third, I would say that the government bureaucracy has been horrible in terms of actually processing whatever remnants of a system we currently have. So just being able to actually navigate the system is a disaster. So the system is old, the border is broken, and we have no idea how to actually process visas that we actually have. So now let's talk about where, where really one of the focuses is re- regarding the border, and that is economic impact. The idea of what is it that we're experiencing on both levels, the cost of our current levels of enforcement and the cost of non-enforcement. Now, normally in an economic conversation, We have to get into the cost of what happens if we don't have people coming into the country. I, of course, favor legal immigration in a great and and grand way, a beneficiary of it, going back to my grandparents. Um, Mm -hmm. But that's usually where we start. I I think that maybe we want to start in a little bit of a different place. What is the economic impact of the policies that we have now? And what is uh, your vision, AFP's vision, a vision, if you will, of policies and how does that help that economic impact? 
Yeah, so right now the economic impact at the border is 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 pretty significant, meaning that we are we're getting it all wrong and it's actually pretty costly. So we are not uh, enforcing the law as we currently have it or doing it in a way that seems uh, aligned with what we have in terms of our system. And by and so when we do that, we have to understand that then we see more people start to come because they understand that our system is actually incentivizing them to do that. Right, like that is the way you get into the country now. Much easier than than trying to get through one of the visa systems, trying to to navigate any sort of process that we currently have. And that, those costs are significant. We're seeing those costs at the border directly, right? So uh, the the time that our the CBP folks at the border are focusing more on humanitarian efforts versus security efforts, like there's a cost to that. Um, and it's, it's our security costs, right? So we're not getting the kind of security that the country expects and demands. And then we're seeing the cost as we try to come up ad hoc with systems that are going to bring in the people who are at the border or deport them, right? And so there's also a cost to that. And we're just not doing it effectively or efficiently, right? It, we're not actually having a system that, that properly lets individuals coming to the border know whether or not they qualify and if not they should be you know go through the deportation process people who are then staying because our system doesn't know how to give them that answer it's just completely delayed we don't know how to actually get them in front of the judges or others who can process their system their their request in a timely manner let me all let costing me, us let me jump in on that right we yeah. we know that we've got millions of people trying to get in front of of a judge and we have heard that the backlog there to actually seeing a judge is upwards of five years. So certainly as a policy, that doesn't work. But doesn't this go to the idea, and we hear this a lot, that part of our policy issue is that we are engaged in this constant conversation about asylum uh, rather than a recognition of people being migrants who are moving for economic desires as opposed to uh, an asylum seeker who is trying to come to the United States for an actual fear of, of their life. We are definitely talking more about asylum and it's because of the failure of our actual immigration system. To the point you just made, a lot of folks think that the asylum process is the way into the country. And so it is shouldn't be anyone surprised that the asylum system is being overwhelmed. And you are absolutely correct. There are people who are trying to come in through the asylum process who are who won't qualify and should not be thinking that asylum is the way in. But at the, at the moment, we are not actually having a functioning system that allows individuals who are coming for economic reasons, which by the way, the country wants them. We have a huge gap in terms of demands uh, from, our, from our business sector and economic sectors of, the, of labor demands that are not being met. And so as a country, we want more people to come and apply their skills and apply their talents here but we're telling them that the only way to actually come in and do that is through the asylum to then work without the right work authorization and, and kind of live in the shadows. And that there's a cost to each of that process, not just to the country, but to the immigrants themselves. And so anyone who's advocating for this status quo is neither a friend to the immigrant or the country because this system just is failing on all fronts. Talking to Jorge Lima, Senior Vice President of Policy for Americans for Prosperity, americansforprosperity.org, talking about economic impact uh, of immigration. I agree regarding this conversation about asylum and how uh, the, the asylum push, and we see this from NGOs and others 
at the border creates a, a, a real issue for the United States, not only in, in terms of a preventing us from getting workers that employers would love to have and therefore creating solid relationships, uh, but uh, from the cost of actually enforcing what we have. If everybody is pushing for asylum, this is a massive drain on the economy. Do we have a number, though? We talk about it costs money, that this policy is costing us economically. Do we have a number to what that num to what this policy is costing us? I mean, there are a number of estimates out there, but I would say, and, and some folks are putting it in the hundreds of millions into the billions even, um, when you start looking at all of the consequences of this kind of failed system from the enforcement side, the security side, and then of course, the just the labor market and economic side, but all of that tears up to a cost to the country when we know that immigration is a net benefit, right? Immigration helps, the immigrant helps the country and over time, it's something that really continues to position the United States as the economic powerhouse that it is. And yet we're, we're almost like tripping over ourselves uh, to get there when we can do it in a much better way. You bring up asylum. Right now, the conversation is all about asylum because it's getting overwhelmed. What I would hope from our leaders is that the solution conversation shifts away from asylum. Because if all we're talking about is a debate about whether to shut down or expand asylum, you're missing the point. The big problem is our legal immigration system. And that's the one that needs to get fixed, needs to be expanded. And when it don't qualify, needs to be enforced. That is how you are fair to the immigrant. That is how you help build trust and confidence in the American people. That you have an immigration system that is takes their best interest at heart and is really here to help the country. So before, before moving on, is there a dollar amount to how much we're wasting uh, every year uh, on this... Uh... Uh, on this constant asylum push that's coming? Again, I, I don't have a, a one number, right? Because the numbers, it all depends on, are you looking at the cost of having a underground economy and labor market? Are you looking at the cost of the lives of the immigrants and how disruptive this process is? Are you looking at the cost of our border communities and now even our cities in the interior who are scrambling to determine what to do with these newcomers that are coming into their cities? All of that cost can add up. I would say you still see the benefit of when those individuals come and contribute. You, the, the other side of the debate is that there's still benefit, but to ignore that we're doing it at a cost uh, would be a, a really big miss. You really got to understand that we can do that more effectively so that the positive side is much larger than the current negative side. So the the very concept of, you, you mentioned earlier, fairness uh, to, to the immigrants, I, I I have a, a giant issue with that argument because that argument is to is, is predicated on the idea that somehow the United States isn't fair. And what Americans are saying is, what about the fairness to us? What about the fairness to my kids? What about the fairness to the amount we're spending at, at the border as opposed to where we should be spending this money in other places? You often hear this conversation regarding veterans. Look at all that's given to people coming across the border illegally and look at veterans sleeping in their cars. So the fairness conversation to the migrant is one that, that seems uh, offensive at at the first, at the quick, as opposed to how do we ensure immigration that keeps Americans safe, that keeps Americans prosperous, and recognizes the value on the other side? I, I think you're absolutely right, and I'm glad you brought this up, Tony, because in immigration, and I think across many parts of our political debates, you are seeing that the, the fairness argument has almost been weaponized 
And the whole point of the fairness argument is only to point fingers and to show somebody that they're losing at the cost of somebody else. We reject that. And so when I talk about fairness, what I'm talking about is quite simply equal treatment under the law, that the law is clear and that people understand where, where, what, how the law will apply to them and that we are applying that law equally. And so what are our visas and do you qualify? And if you do not qualify, then you should know. And if you are still here after you don't qualify, you should be deported. If you do qualify, then you should stay and you should understand what are your rights under the law. Right now, we don't have that. We don't have clarity of the law that allows people to understand what process they can they can undertake. How can they come in? Instead, to your point earlier, we say, okay, you somehow made it across the border in five years. Please come back and see a judge, uh, at which point maybe we'll give you a point of view on what, whether or not we think you should stay. It, and I'm oversimplifying here, but that that is not fair, right? The idea that nobody knows, the immigrant doesn't know, the American people don't know what the laws actually say and whether or not they're even being enforced. That is what I mean by fairness, right? Equal treatment under the law. If we're, the, the debate about whether who gets what service, who's struggling more, that just pins us once again against another, which I think, again, is a distraction and almost helps the status quo survive, definitely has in terms of immigration with no real progress for more than decades. And really what this system should be doing is helping Americans collaborate with immigrants because that's when we know we see the greater benefit, again, to the economy, to the country, to our communities, and to the immigrants themselves. But when you when you recommend policy and, and you guys come up with policy ideas, the policy idea is not to the idea that the United States should somehow suffer uh, from from immigration, it is the idea that America can prosper from this Im from from immigration, and something that that I favor, and I think history has indeed proven. So, uh, be before anything, is there your policies that that you discuss, and I want to get into some of them. Certainly, engage the idea that there are some people who should not be allowed into the United States. Absolutely, people who want to come to the United States to do us harm should not be welcomed into the United States. Um, now, how do we determine that? I, I trust that we have the security information and, and, and the ability to search out individuals who are coming with bad intentions, whether those are the cartels, uh, folks that are smuggling drugs, right? folks who want to abuse of our systems. There are ways to determine that. Now, I think it's a, it's a disgrace to, to think about our immigration system solely as a charity effort. right? That is not what immigration is intended to do. That is not how immigration helps our country or the immigrant, because we're not here. It, it isn't one big charity case. Now, there are certainly spaces for humanitarian aid. We believe that the asylum system should exist, but it should be, we should reinforce it and uphold what it was originally set to do and not the current status where it just is the only way that we're allowing new immigrants in. So and talk so, to me about policy. Say to me, Tell me here at Americans for Prosperity, I'm talking to Jorge Lima, Senior Vice President of Americans for Prosperity for Policy. Here's what we're proposing. This is why, what we'd like to see Republicans and, yes, Democrats to get behind. Walk me through it. Well, we think, first of all, you got to look at the legal system. And I start there because that is, the, that is a way that you're going to relieve some of the pressure that's currently at the border. So I'm not just trying to put legal systems on top of border. I think they're both uniquely uh, destined together. And so you've got to look at our system and we would start by saying the current system just doesn't keep up with demand. And so how do we make sure that immigrants have a way to access a visa if they want to come work, if work is available here in the United States? And we can talk about how you make those visas 
go through the process to understand what the actual demand is and that there are, are abilities for the employers to, to understand and vet the individual as well as our security systems to vet the individual before they come in. But we are, we are ill prepared to actually provide the type of temporary visas or seasonal visas or even uh, longer term work visas that our economy demands. And the system needs to be updated. Right now, that system is largely family-based and family is important. We should relook at that and make sure that, again, that isn't the only way to come in because then we're just doing things by chance. We should have a more skills-based process um, and definitely one that at least balances it out with the way that we're looking at family reunification or family-based uh, immigration. Th those things need to be relooked. Now, we have to look at them in a way that, again, not only understands our demands as a country and as an economy, but also understands the processing side. Because what happens, we can design it to meet those demands and suddenly the bureaucracy takes over. And then again, we're stuck with huge backlogs. We're huge, uh, stuck with huge bureaucratic requirements to just make it almost impossible to bring folks. And then guess what? You're stuck again by in, that, in a system that incentivizes folks to go outside of the system. But if we actually had a, a visa system that was easily accessible for people to come in and, and obtain the types of visas for them to contribute and our economy agreed that we needed that contribution, then you have to look at the border and say, well, how do we enforce what's happening? And if you are not qualifying for asylum, if you are showing up for economic reasons and don't have the visa, you will get deported. That is not the system we want. You should have come in through one of the legal channels that we have. We need to supply our enforcement security uh, teams with the right infrastructure, with the right technology and the right personnel in order to get that done. And I'm the first person, if you check the full interview, over at TonyCats.com, very clear. When we talk about demand, we're, we're talking about the needs of the nation, not demands of people who want to get into the nation. The needs of the nation, our demands, that has got to be the front and center conversation. My thanks there to Jorge Lima from Americans for Prosperity. Border Week, we're covering it all week. We're talking about the border. We're talking about uh, the wall, the economic impact, the policy issues, all of it. So we have an understanding of what it is we need to do or what it is we can do, and dear Lord, what it is they're not doing in D.C., which is, well, so dang much. This is Tony Katz Today. Nikki Haley will get the endorsement of New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu, which certainly helps her as right now, when you take a look at the state of New Hampshire, she is in second place. That last poll putting her at 18%, Trump's at 46%. Can we be perfectly clear? And DeSantis down at 7%. He's in fourth place in New Hampshire, but he is truly betting an Iowa strategy. This is good for Nikki Haley. I just don't know if anybody cares about the endorsement of Chris Sununu. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today. Good to be with you, people bandied about Chris Sununu's name as a guy who could run for president, maybe should run for president. Uh, he's not running for president. He's going to back Nikki Haley. Now, Nikki Haley's strategy, depending on whatever happens in Iowa, is New Hampshire, South Carolina, and show massive strength heading into a Super Tuesday and trying to make her the default candidate. I've made the argument right here. Her path is a better one than, than, than Ron DeSantis. Her path is better because South Carolina is her home and New Hampshire to South Carolina gives her strength in terms of a, a one-two punch. She's got this opportunity. But really, until Iowa, when we see what Trump does, it's all just speculation. 
Find everything at TonyCats.com. This is Tony Katz today. Now, I'm going to throw something else out there that I normally don't throw out there. And that is, if you look at the CPI indexes, the raw indexes, in September at 307.78, that is the all-time high going back over 100 years. It's 307.05 right now. The core, which is seasonally adjusted raw data, is at an all-time high at 312.25. Never, ever been higher. The point here is, is that we annualize and we look at numbers at this point forward. But if you go back in the rearview mirror, inflation compounds, and it's that dynamic that the public is not very happy with. That idea that the inflation compounds is something we've been discussing. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. It's good to be with you. Find everything at TonyKatz.com. And the CPI cut number comes in inflation slowing to 3.1% because the consumer price index only increased 0.1, but the core increased 0.3. The inflation compounds, yet we're told that inflation is getting better, but we're still feeling it. So why is the market so absolutely a believer that the soft landing is in the future. Dr. Matt Will joins us, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Let's start with this CPI. It's 0.1 up in November. It is 0.3 up, excluding food and energy prices, which I don't even know if you can do. Tell me what you think it means. Well, you know, I I agree with Rick's assessment of the situation. I kind of laughed when I heard it this morning because, you know, you and I have been talking about this for a long time, which is the, you know, the annual year over year versus the monthly multiplied by 12, or in his case, you know, three months multiplied by 12. Yes, it looks like when you consider everything that we're still at this 3.1%, okay, it's not going as slow as we thought. It's up from last month, but it's kind of flat until you exclude food and energy. When you look at core inflation, it's still over 4%. That's not a good number still over 4%. People need to think about that because the target is below two. And so we're 100% above target. And that is not a good sign right now. And when you dig into the the numbers, there's a lot more things to be worried about. And I'm guessing we're going to dig into the numbers, but there's a lot more to be worried about than the headline. We are, but but before anything, just as a matter of just going back and making sure we're all on the same page. Why do we exclude food and energy? They're called volatile. Why do we, they get excluded when looking at the numbers? Well, it's, it's not that they're getting excluded. It's just what would be the inflation without them? Because energy, for example, fluctuates wildly. I mean, let's look at fuel. Or no, let's look at gasoline. Gasoline. In August, it was up 10.6% for the month. This last month, it was down 6 that is extremely volatile. So when something is that volatile, you got to say, okay, let's remove that and also do an analysis. And that's what they mean by core. So now you take a look at the number itself. You take a look at the overall and it says 0.1%, but it's three point, it's still 3.1%. That's based on, on 12 months. The Consumer price index rose 3.1% November from 12 months earlier. But that's down from October. Why shouldn't I look at that and say, ooh, we are now starting to get a slow slide downward? 
for two reasons. One is the monthly ticked back up. So that's concern number one, that the monthly in November is up from the monthly in October. But you got to remove energy. And energy fell dramatically. Gasoline, 6% in one month. If you look at fuel oil over 12 months, 25% drop. That is clouding the number. So the 3.1%, that's actually too low. You remove these volatile figures and you're looking at a much higher number. And that's what we need to be concerned about because fuel drop, but not for a good reason. It's the reason we've spoken about over and over again. It's recession on the horizon. The economy has lower demand. OPEC is not cutting the production like they said they were going to. So when we take a look at this number and this fuel oil number being different than gasoline, gasoline being down 8.9%, we should, you, you, you would think that this means things are coming down and we should see a down overall, but we didn't see a down overall. And the reason, of course, as we've discussed, talking to Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis, there's no demand on China to produce things, so they're not as thirsty. Uh, Europe is already in recession. We know that to be true. So the demand is less overall that should have driven other things down. Your point is it didn't drive other things down, and that's where a concern should be. What are the specific items that gave you concern this month? Well, transportation. You know, transportation was up 1.1% for the month, and you got to think about that. With fuel prices being down, that's an incredible increase because fuel is part of that. Because, you know, the airlines, when they provide you transportation services, they got to buy their fuel. So that's up. Medical expenses, up 0.6. You know, and I tell you, this is, this is the kicker, is used cars. We've been talking about used cars dropping and dropping and dropping. They're back up. This is, this is the announcement. Hello, we're inflation. We haven't gone away. That's what that says to me when I see 1.6% for the month. Yeah, so I'm looking at used cars and trucks up 1.6 just to give everybody an idea. From June, July, August, September, and October, it had gone down 0. 0.5, 1.3, 1.2, 2.5, 0. 0.8. It had gone down five months in a row, if you will. It showed a negative. The last time it was up was May. It was four, up 4.4. 4. Now it's up uh, 1.6. But I also noticed that new vehicle sales are down 0.1. So used cars went up, but new vehicles went down. This is part of the credit crunch conversation? Yes, it's that's exactly it. It's part of the credit crunch situation and also demand. If people aren't making as much money, and we know that wages are not keeping up with inflation. We know that to be a fact. The government keeps reporting it. If your wages are not keeping up with inflation and you need a car, you're going to buy a used car, not a new car. So the demand for used cars is telling us the household budget is not in as good a shape as it was. And also you don't have, as, have to have as good a credit to buy a used car as you do a new car. Let me talk about where, where the household credit is for, for a moment, stepping away from the report. This was the Wall Street Journal yesterday. The math for buying a home no longer works. And the chart is from CBRE, uh, Gina Heeb with the story, H-E-E-B, Gina Heeb with the story over there at, uh, at the Wall Street Journal that an average monthly lease payment, right? You're, you're buying a, or you're renting a, an apartment, renting a house, is $2,184 a month. When in uh, the first quarter of 2021, it was $1,780. So you, you've gone up nearly three to $400 in, in making a payment on a, on a, on a lease, on, on, a, on, a, on a, an apartment. 
if in the third quarter of 2021 or fourth quarter of 2021, you were paying $2,000 for a mortgage, average payment, now you're paying $3,300. So this is, of course, the increase in interest rates that are, that are uh, affecting all of this. But this is massive to the idea of where people can spend their money and the, 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 the very concept of house poor. <clears throat> You know, but it's more, it's more, it's more than inflation. Let me give you another piece of data. You're right. Interest rates cause increase in monthly payments, but what about closing costs? Closing costs were up 22% year over year, 22%. That equates to $5,900 more year over year in closing costs. These are the fact that the banks have to make their money somewhere. And they're not making money, as we saw in the housing or the mortgage, the banking crisis earlier this year. So it's tough to buy a home when you're $6,000 more out of pocket to buy a home. And you don't have it because your wages aren't keeping up with inflation. Now let's tie a bow on this. Give you two things here, Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. The first is this short clip from Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen saying that we're on a soft landing path. So do you, you've said you see a soft landing as the most likely outcome for the economy. Is that, do I have that right? Yes, in the sense that, um, to me, a soft landing is the economy continues to grow, the labor market remains strong, and inflation comes down. And I believe that's the path we're on. She believes we're on a path where the labor market remains strong, but the inflation comes down that's going to be the soft landing if you take a look at the cnbc fed survey they'll they'll tell you that people believe that the soft landing probability is up to 47 percent up five points from october and they think that the fed will start cutting rates mid-year 2024 so i take a look at this consumer price index report i say the inflation is still here but the people on Wall Street and Secretary Yellen are all telling me that everything is super fine and dandy, Dr. Will, and that we are going to have the soft landing. As a matter of fact, Janet Yellen is going to get herself one of those nice, comfy down pillows and rest you there in the reeds like your Moses. Well, all I can say is she is much better at predicting the future than me, although her track record is terrible. We can go back and look at that. I don't think we have the time, but it is terrible. She has a terrible track record for forecasting the future. I don't predict the future, but I do know this. All those Wall Street people you just mentioned that are saying soft landing, if you dig into their details of their analysis, they say the labor market is getting in worse condition. That contradicts what she just said. So I don't think it's going to be, I don't know if it's going to be soft or hard, but I do know this. Her forecasting record is terrible. Talk to me about the idea of, of the labor market. Uh, why would there be a feeling that it's about to get worse? Well, because we saw this in the report that we, you and I analyzed just last week, that what we're seeing is that the job openings are decreasing. The unemployment rate is fluctuating because it has to do with participation rate. The great resignation is not being reversed yet. And that what we're starting to see is a slowdown in the economy, as we see in these numbers right now in the CPI for fuel, slow down the economy, less people being hired, unemployment rate will go up. I heard on the same report you gave this morning that you played earlier this clip, same interview that the forecast is that we may hit over 4% unemployment sometime in the middle of next month or next year. Now, we have not paid much attention to unemployment rates. 
And the reason we haven't paid much attention to them is because they don't seem to be as much of an indicator as as things like producer price index and what we're warehousing, what we're actually manufacturing, whether that is up or down, uh, how people are seeing, uh, you know, the, 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 the future. They're being very, very wary. You're now telling me I should be paying attention to what that unemployment number is going to be? Yes, because we've seen a trend. We talked about this, I think it was on Thursday or Friday. There is now a trend that is coming. It, well, it's not coming. It's here. The trend is moving in the wrong direction. The number of people unemployed is, is you know, fluctuating. The number of people employed is not moving up as fast as it should be. The participation rate is not moving. We see this unemployment picture growing into next year. So if the, if the labor force participation rate is not growing, you mean that more people are not getting into the workforce. They're saying, I may have lost my job. I might not be sure about my job, but that's just the way it is. And there are no other jobs to get. That's what you're arguing. There are no other jobs to get right now if you lose your job. No, no, there are plenty of jobs to get. There's 8.6 million openings right. at the moment. So I'm not what sure where you're at. People are saying, no, but people are saying they don't want to go into the workforce. And we, that's a whole long discussion about daycare, um, quality of life, standard of living, accepting. I mean, there's a lot of reasons that go into that. But people aren't going back into the workforce. They've resigned during the great you know, COVID thing. They're just not coming back to work. That is a fact. So the unemployment rate going up has nothing to do with the fact that we have 8.7 million jobs that they could fill. There aren't more people going back into the workforce. They're fine with what they've got. They're going to wait this whole thing out. That's a, is, is, is that a conversation about the value of the dollar not being enough, that going back to work isn't worth it? Or is that a cultural conversation about why should I have to work at all? It's a cultural conversation. And I know we can't quantify that, and I'm sorry about that, but it's a cultural conversation. People that during the pandemic went home and stayed with their children, and then when they had a chance to go back to work, thought, you know, I'm going to stay at home. This is much better. I like this. I like being at home with my kids. So we've seen this cultural shift. And, you know, some of them are educating their kids at home because they don't want to send their kids to a public school. Some of them decided they're going to accept a lower uh, standard of living as defined by the government, but a higher quality of living as defined by them. And that's what we've seen happening. In your view, in the view of economists, uh, 2024, um, they, they, you know, that we talk about the, the, the survey, and maybe I should ask the question uh, a, a different way. Nothing about the numbers you've seen over the past few days, including today's Consumer Price Index report, tells you that everything is hunky-dory in 2024? No, it tells me the opposite. When I see fuel and gas prices and energy commodities dropping by dramatic numbers, that tells me demand is low. And we know it. China's in a recession. Germany's in its, like, what, fourth quarter now of a recession. We see a recession around the world. The demand is low. We cannot fight the tide. Will we? Soft, hard, no recession. I can't predict the future, but the rest of the world's in a recession already. Dr. Matt Will, economist at the University of Indianapolis. Find him on the X Twitter, Dr. Matt Will, W-I-L-L, Dr. Matt Will, on the Twitter Xbox right there. Always a pleasure, sir. More is coming up. I'm Tony Katz. Jack Smith wants the Supreme Court to rule. You tell us, can we charge the former president of the United States? Is it possible to, to engage in a prosecution? 
even though he was president? Can we move forward? Why should we have to go appeal after appeal after appeal? The judge in the case already said that we can move forward in in, in the prosecution. But now Trump doesn't like that answer. And Trump's going to to take this uh, to an an appellate court. Let's just skip the middleman. Because Trump's claiming that you can't even bring the case against him about alleged crimes that occurred when he was president. You can't can't bring this uh, against him. And so now Jack Smith said, okay, we'll take a right to the Supreme Court. Smith asked the court to take the step of weighing in on the presidential, on Trump's uh, presidential immunity claim. And the Supreme Court said, yeah, sure. December 20th, 4 p.m. Trump and Trump team, you have to have your explanation to us. You have to have it to us. We'll, We'll rule on this. Which, by the way, good. I have always argued that the big, one of the big mistakes the Supreme Court has made, amongst many, is that they never actually heard the testimony and ruled on some of the conversations, the lawsuits regarding the voting that was improper during 2020. They should have. That's their job. As Alito and Thomas said, if we're not ruling on this, what do we do here? This is exactly what we should be ruling on. So I'm glad they're going to rule on this. Because, I mean, this is this is the case, right? Can you actually prosecute a former president? I think you can. But the court will decide. Find everything at TonyCats.com tomorrow, everyone. Take care.